This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. So most of us already know or are learning how to plan for a wedding or a baby or retirement. But how do you plan for things that you don't normally plan for, like preventing depression or Alzheimer's or the next epidemic? Well, on this episode, we're going to explore what we can do today to better prepare ourselves for tomorrow. Today's show is called Prevention, and it originally aired in July of 2017. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. So we're going to start out today with Daniel Levitin. Daniel's a neuroscientist. Hello, Daniel. It's uh, it's Guy Raz here. Thanks for joining us. Guy, thanks for having me. Now, unexpectedly, one of the first things Daniel told us about was a recent car accident. I was stunned uh, by the accident. I got whiplash. I got a concussion. But I had rehearsed the situation that if I get in an accident like this, the first person I'm going to call is my doctor and let him know. And then I'm going to call the police and ask them to come out because I'm not in any kind of state where I can evaluate what I need or don't need. Wait, you actually, even though you had not been in an accident before this, you had rehearsed this exact scenario in the past? Exactly. I had rehearsed this scenario. If I'm in an auto accident, what do I do? You know, I didn't think about it more than five minutes. And then I just kind of filed it away. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. I think that the principle for all of us is that because in moments of panic, we're not at our peak, we need to think ahead and train ourselves. Although I wasn't always that way. Hmm. I just, you know, it comes from 45 years of making mistakes and realizing that The amount of time it takes to clean up the mess is a lot more than the amount of time it takes to front load the effort. On the show today, ideas about prevention. How the things we do today can change the way we experience tomorrow. And why it's sometimes so hard to do the stuff we know we should do, like planning ahead for a crisis or exercising or eating the right things. Because the future, even the near future, often seems so far away. But some people, well, some people are just different. Like neuroscientist Daniel Levitin, who started to think about how he might prevent or even mitigate future crises after one particularly bad day. Here's Daniel on the TED stage. A few years ago, I broke into my own house. I had just driven home. It was around midnight in the dead of Montreal winter. I'd been visiting my friend Jeff across town. And the thermometer on the front porch read minus 40 degrees. And as I stood on the front porch fumbling in my pockets, I found I didn't have my keys. So I quickly ran around and tried all the other doors and windows, and they were locked tight. I thought about calling a locksmith. At least I had my cell phone. But at midnight, it could take a while for a locksmith to show up and... I couldn't go back to my friend Jeff's house for the night because I had an early flight to Europe the next morning and I needed to get my passport and my suitcase. So desperate and freezing cold, I found a large rock and I broke through the basement window, crawled through, I found a piece of cardboard and taped it up over the whole opening, figuring that in the morning on the way to the airport I could call my contractor and ask him to to fix it. Now, I'm a neuroscientist by training, and I know a little bit about how the brain performs under stress. It releases cortisol, that raises your heart rate, it uh, modulates adrenaline levels, and it clouds your thinking. So the next morning, when I woke up, on too little sleep, 
worrying about the hole in the window and the mental note that I had to call my contractor and the freezing temperatures and the meetings I had upcoming in Europe. My thinking was cloudy, but I didn't know it was cloudy because my thinking was cloudy. And <laughs> it wasn't until I got to the airport check-in counter that I realized I didn't have my passport. So, I mean, what happens to us when we're faced with a crisis, any kind of crisis that requires us to make a quick decision? Is, what is the sort of the physiological response to that? Well, so the brain developed mechanisms for coping with stressful uh, and potentially dangerous events. And the brain releases cortisol, the stress hormone. It, it's partly mediated by a structure that's part of the reptilian brain, the amygdala. And this causes a cascade of really interesting things to happen to your brain chemistry. The first thing that happens is adrenaline is released. And then your body tries to conserve energy in order to deal with the crisis at hand. And so a bunch of stuff shuts down, like your digestive system. Your reproductive drive shuts down. You don't need to be feeling uh, reproductive is the nice word for it. And your immune system shuts down. And unfortunately, rational systematic thought shuts down and you start dealing from your gut and your instinct. But there's most of the jams we get in in modern life, the reptilian brain isn't equipped to handle. And I started wondering, are there things that I can do, systems that I can put into place that'll prevent bad things from happening? Or at least if bad things happen, will minimize the likelihood of it being a total catastrophe. But my thoughts didn't crystallize until about a month later. I was having dinner with my colleague Danny Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, and I somewhat embarrassedly told him about having broken my window and you know, forgot my passport. And Danny shared with me that he'd been practicing something called prospective hindsight, also called the pre-mortem. Now, you all know what the post-mortem is. Whenever there's a disaster, a you know, team of experts come in and they try to figure out what went wrong, right? Well, in the pre-mortem, Danny explained, you look ahead and you try to figure out all the things that could go wrong, and then you try to figure out what you can do to prevent those things from happening or to minimize the damage. So part of the practice of the pre-mortem is to recognize that under stress, you're not going to be at your best, and you should put systems in place. So, so this idea of a pre-mortem, this has actually become a habit, like a part of your life? Like you regularly imagine in advance how you would react to different kinds of problematic scenarios? Yes, it's exactly that. And, you know, the military uses this, ideally. Mm -hmm. We hope that the government uses this kind of thinking. And pilots, they go through endless exercises about what you're going to do in various stressful scenarios so that you don't have to think. It becomes automatic. Certainly, successful businesses tend to do that, but there's no reason it can't trickle down to the rest of us, right? Sure. I'll give you an example. So today, uh, you're in Washington. I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, I woke up in San Francisco this morning, and I took in an early flight this morning, knowing that if that flight for some reason was canceled or delayed, there was a backup flight that I could take. Hmm and still make it to, to talk to you on time. The other thing I knew was that if all flights were canceled, there was a studio near the airport that I could run into and do the interview from there, and we booked some backup time there. So, you know, it's just a matter of um, thinking ahead. Can I take control to make sure it doesn't upset the schedule? But, I mean, I think it seems like despite... All of the planning that that we could do for a variety of scenarios and situations, um, we, we just sort of kind of have to accept that we can't prevent the things that will happen to us, whatever they may be. I agree. And again, I, what I come back to on this is you can't control the future. You can attempt to influence it. But some of the things you can control are your responses. You can be ready to think about something because you've... you've You've thought about it before. You can be ready to adapt and adjust. You can learn skills, whether they're practical or psychological. You can practice and learn those so that when the unexpected happens, you can roll with the punches. Daniel Levitin, 
He's a neuroscientist. His most recent book is called The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. So the first thing that might come to mind when you think of prevention is disease, especially infectious disease like malaria or yellow fever or cholera or Ebola. And Ebola, of course, was all over the news just a few years ago when an epidemic started in a small village in Guinea in West Africa and then started to spread to neighboring countries. By the time health workers got the outbreak under control, it had killed more than 11,000 people. I remember how scary that was. It was very scary because it not only killed people, but then killed the health workers who were taking care of them. And of course, people bleed out and, you know, it's a horrible death. This is epidemiologist Seth Berkeley. I'm the CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. Seth's organization works to get vaccines to people in developing countries to prevent or at least to slow down the spread of epidemics. Because today, unlike any other time in human history, an outbreak in a small village in Africa can spread around the world in a matter of days. Well, absolutely. So, I mean, I often have dinner in Nairobi, you know, breakfast in London and lunch in New York. And that's within the incubation period of dozens and dozens of infectious diseases. People travel and therefore viruses travel. And so you're at threat from diseases that appear anywhere in the world. The best thing to do is to try to prevent those diseases at the source of where they might spread. The fact that public health workers managed to get the Ebola epidemic under control at all and prevent millions from dying is actually astounding, especially because there is still no approved vaccine for the disease. No way to prevent it in the first place. And why? Well, here's Seth Berkeley's take from the TED stage. We fear Ebola because of the fact that it kills us and we can't treat it. But wait a second, why is that? We've known about Ebola since 1976. We've known what it's capable of. We've had ample opportunity to study it in the 24 outbreaks that have occurred. And in fact, we've actually had vaccine candidates available now for more than a decade. Why is it that those vaccines are just going into clinical trials now? This goes to the fundamental problem we have with vaccine development for infectious diseases. It goes something like this. The people most at risk for these diseases are also the ones least able to pay for vaccines. This leaves little in the way of market incentives for manufacturers to develop vaccines unless there's large numbers of people who are at risk in wealthy countries. It's simply too commercially risky. Vaccine development is expensive and complicated. It can cost hundreds of millions of dollars to take even a well-known antigen and turn it into a viable vaccine. And this is really the point. The sad reality is we develop vaccines not based upon the risk the pathogen poses to people, but on how economically risky it is to develop these vaccines. In just a moment, we'll hear from Seth Berkeley on how, despite this flawed system, we can prepare for and maybe even prevent future outbreaks. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com slash NPR today to get 10% off your first month. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about prevention. And just a minute ago, epidemiologist Seth Berkley explained why we still don't have vaccines for diseases that have been around for a long time, like Ebola. And the answer? Vaccines cost a lot to produce, and there's no real incentive for companies to make them for developing countries. If the vaccines are being made um, based upon the risk for commercial production versus on the risk of disease, that is a problem. And so, you know, we collectively as society made a decision that the private sector is who's going to produce our drugs and vaccines. We have to, you know, acknowledge that and put incentives in place to make sure that they produce vaccines on, you know, that are needed and not necessarily just the ones that are commercially most viable. Do you think we would be better off if this really was led by by governments? I think the challenge in governments, and we've seen this in many parts of science, is that um, you know there is a danger of central planning and there's a danger of not having the power of innovation and I think what's interesting about when you know the commercial sector moves forward on something is often multiple companies move forward at the same time. Sometimes when you're lucky, you know you get multiple products coming out and you can choose the best of those. These are all the good parts of having industry do it, and you know it's critical for us to continue to innovate if we're going to um, ultimately have the products we need. Now, Seth says there are ways to strike a balance between what's cost-effective and what's morally right. The first is to recognize when there's a complete market failure. In that case, if we want vaccines, we have to provide incentives or some type of subsidy. We also need to do a better job at being able to figure out which are the diseases that most threaten us. We have to stop waiting until we see evidence of a disease becoming a global threat before we consider it as one. Every year, we spend billions of dollars keeping a fleet of nuclear submarines permanently patrolling the oceans to protect us from a threat that almost certainly will never happen. And yet, we spend virtually nothing to prevent something as tangible and evolutionarily certain as epidemic infectious diseases. And make no mistake about it, it's not a question of if, but when. These bugs are going to continue to evolve, and they're going to threaten the world. And vaccines are our best defense. But even when vaccines do exist to treat a disease, there's another big problem actually getting the vaccines to the people who need them most. So for that, what we have to have is systems, because vaccines don't deliver themselves. So first of all, you know, initially some of the vaccines were very inexpensive. They're old vaccines. They've been produced um, in large quantities. And the challenge in those cases is getting them to the people who need them. So you need a healthcare worker, you need a cold chain, that's to keep the vaccines refrigerated when they go out in the field. You need a data system to record those vaccines and then also be able to follow up if they're being missed. And, you know, people don't necessarily live near health centers. So, you know, a woman walks 10 kilometers to get to a health center to vaccinate her child and there's no vaccine there or there's no health worker there, it's unlikely the next day she's going to pick up and, you know, turn and walk another 10 kilometers. So one of the problems then is is having the systems in place and it's something that we're actively working on. The other problem is the newer vaccines start quite expensive and with limited quantities. And the challenge was how do you get that cost down and make them affordable for the developing world? And that's what my organization, Gavi the Vaccine Alliance, was created to do. Do, do we know how many kids die, die from those diseases? every year? Today, um, we estimate that there's about 1.4 million children that are still dying of vaccine-preventable diseases. Wow, that's just unbelievable. But there, I mean, there are some vaccination programs that, that have been pretty effective, right? Like like for polio. Yes. Um, we're in a, 
a moment that's extraordinary in that there's only been three cases of polio this last year. And so we're right on the brink potentially of eliminating that disease. And this is what happened with smallpox. Smallpox was a terrible disease that used to kill millions of people. And that was, you know, completely eradicated in 1977. And the effects of these when we are able to eradicate a disease are, you know, enormous cost savings because you can not only stop vaccines, but of course you get rid of the terrible disease burdens that these diseases had. So, Seth, right now, you know, we know that climate change is happening, right? And it will get worse in the future. Like, you know, the the oceans will rise and and, and sea ice will melt and, and human migration patterns will change as a result of all this. You know, and yet even though we know these things, it doesn't necessarily move enough of us to change or or to prevent those things from happening. You know, and it seems like it's the same, like the same challenge when it comes to preventable diseases and and diseases that could potentially be cured or, or eliminated through vaccination. Well, I mean, you know, they're connected. So if you look at Africa, we're going to see a quadrupling of population by 2100. As you have to feed that population, it's going to mean pushing towards the forests and having destruction of forests and contact between people and, you know, animals in the forest. And so if you take all of that together, what you're going to say is there's going to be lots more infectious diseases that are going to occur in these settings. The challenge then is, is the world going to focus on this, you know, either from a humanitarian point of view because it's the right thing to do, but if not from a self-preservation point of view. Do you think that it's in some ways part of human nature, like that we're almost wired in this way to to react rather than than to prevent? If you look at the you know the paradox of prevention, I mean, you know, people will do anything to be treated, and they'll they'll overvalue treatment, even when you have treatments that are not very good. They want to try them if they have a serious disease. On the other hand, you know, they won't do much to try to prevent it. We've seen that in smoking. We've seen that in seatbelt use. We've seen that in, you know, many different risky uh, things. And so I think it is a fact of human nature that people undervalue prevention and overvalue the treatment and uh, dealing with disease. Seth Berkeley is CEO of Gavi the Vaccine Alliance. By the way, they're actually on track to license one of the world's first Ebola vaccines by the end of 2017. You can hear Seth's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about prevention, the things we can do today to prepare ourselves for tomorrow. Even when it comes to something that doesn't seem preventable at all, something like Alzheimer's. If we're too scared to talk about Alzheimer's to the point where we can make it seem like it doesn't exist because we're not going to talk about it, well, it's awfully hard to cure something that doesn't exist. This is Lisa Genova. And if we can all think back to when people wouldn't say the word cancer, they called it the big C, and we didn't discuss it. And if your neighbor had cancer, we didn't talk about it, and we didn't look at our neighbor anymore. And that person basically got excluded from community and something changed in the world of cancer and people began talking about it. We mention the name, we wear the looped ribbons, we go for walks, we bake casseroles, and we bring those people back into community. And it's no accident that we have treatments and survivors now for cancer. If we're going to get to a point where we have treatments and survivors for Alzheimer's, we need to be in conversation about it today. Lisa is a neuroscientist turned writer. I write novels about people living with neurological diseases and disorders. And a couple years ago, she wrote a novel about Alzheimer's. It's called Still Alice. Still Alice is about a Harvard professor, and she's diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's disease. And so the book is about trying to find out what your worth is. If you've placed all of your worth in what you do, and what you do is think for a living, and it's very cerebral and intellectual, and if you can no longer be that, the book is about Who am I and how can I matter when I have something like Alzheimer's? And as Lisa points out, Alzheimer's is something that will probably impact all of us in one way or another. Here's Lisa Genova on the TED stage. How many people here would like to live to be at least 80 years old? Yeah. I think we all have this hopeful expectation of living into old age. 
Let's project out into the future, to your future yous, and let's imagine that we're all 85. Now, everyone look at two people. One of you probably has Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> and maybe you're thinking, well, it won't be me. Then, okay, you are a caregiver. So, <laughs> in some way, this terrifying disease is likely to affect us all. Part of the fear around Alzheimer's stems from the sense that there's nothing we can do about it. Despite decades of research, we still have no disease-modifying treatment and no cure. So if we're lucky enough to live long enough, Alzheimer's appears to be our brain's destiny. But maybe it doesn't have to be. What if I told you we could change these statistics, literally change our brain's destiny, without relying on a cure or advancements in medicine? I mean, so, so do you think Alzheimer's can be prevented? I do, to an extent. So we think that Alzheimer's begins with the buildup of a protein called amyloid beta. And that buildup can take 10 to 20 years before it reaches a tipping point that then causes the disease to become symptomatic. And so like heart disease, right? Like, So we know that when you go for your physical and you get your blood pressure taken and your cholesterol checked with um, a blood draw, you're being tested for heart disease. And the hope is that if they catch it, you can do something about that either through statins, diet, exercise, to prevent you from getting a heart attack in 10 years or 20 years. Likewise, with Alzheimer's, there are things that we can do to keep those amyloid plaque levels from reaching the tipping point, And they involve similar things. Like? Like. So one of the big discoveries in recent years has to do with sleep. So in slow-wave deep sleep, our glial cells rinse cerebral spinal fluid throughout our brains. And this clears away a lot of the metabolic waste that accumulated during the business of being awake. And one of the things that can clear away is amyloid beta. And so you can imagine that while you're sleeping, this is being sort of swept away. It's like a deep cleanse for the brain. But if you're not getting enough sleep, you're going to wake up in the morning with amyloid beta levels not cleared away. And so it's going to pile up. We know that cardiovascular health is so important. Anything that's good for your heart is also going to be good for your brain. And likewise, anything that's not good for your heart is probably not going to be good for preventing Alzheimer's. And so you can imagine that if you did nothing, you'll reach that tipping point sooner. So in terms of it preventing the disease, you know, maybe you've bought yourself, you know, an extra 10, 15, 20 years. What after the tipping point, what are the uh, what are the symptoms look like? So the symptoms change from like, so for example, there's this phenomenon called tip of the tongue where you're trying to think of someone's name or a word, and you're like, oh, what is it, what is it? I know it begins with S, or I know it has two syllables, but I can't come up with it. Um, and maybe you're driving in your car four hours later, and suddenly the word or the name pops into your head. Oh, it's Sarah. And we all experience this tip of the tongue. In fact, the average 25-year-old experiences three to four tips of the tongue a week. And this does increase a little bit with age. But with something like Alzheimer's, when a word drops out, you don't have the first letter and you don't know the number of syllables and it doesn't come back in a couple of hours. So the beginning symptoms of Alzheimer's will often be words that are lost and not found. It is having trouble remembering what happened a few minutes ago. So short-term memory gets compromised. So it's language, it's memory, it's cognition, it's being able to think through complex tasks. So you're making mistakes at work. Um, if there's a procedure that involves 10 steps, you might not get through all the way to the 10th step. But you'll be unable to complete it. So those mistakes start happening with Alzheimer's. Okay, but what happens you know, if you've already reached that tipping point? Yeah, so in thinking about Alzheimer's, it's helpful to think of synapses. So synapses are the places where neurons communicate, and that's what's under attack in this disease. And the good news for us humans is that we've got a lot of these synapses. The average brain has 100 trillion. Mm. So while they're under attack with Alzheimer's, we've got sort of a lot of backup connections that we could potentially take advantage of. 
We gain and lose synapses all the time through a process called neuroplasticity. Every time we learn something new, we are creating and strengthening new neural connections, new synapses. In the nun study, 678 nuns all over the age of 75 when the study began were followed for more than two decades. They were regularly given physical checkups and cognitive tests, and when they died, their brains were all donated for autopsy. In some of these brains, scientists discovered something surprising. Despite the presence of plaques and tangles and brain shrinkage, what appeared to be unquestionable Alzheimer's, the nuns who had belonged to these brains showed no signs of having the disease while they were alive. How can this be? We think it's because these nuns had a high level of cognitive reserve, which is a way of saying that they had more functional synapses. People who have more years of formal education, who have a high degree of literacy, who engage regularly in mentally stimulating activities, all have more cognitive reserve. They have an abundance and a redundancy in neural connections. So even if they have a disease like Alzheimer's compromising some of their synapses, they've got many extra backup connections, and this buffers them from noticing that anything is amiss. So, so you can do those things like have social connections and, and engage your brain in stimulating activities and potentially slow down and maybe even prevent Alzheimer's from getting worse? Well, you're not going to prevent the actual disease with these things. So the exercise, the good sleep, those are actually going to prevent the disease from happening, the actual pathological neurobiology of Alzheimer's. Hmm. The idea of learning Italian or staying socially engaged or learning to play piano or, or just reading a book, how that can help. It's not going to stop the disease, but it's going to build back up neural connections so that when the other ones go defunct because Alzheimer's has killed them off, you've got these detoured roads. It's sort of like, you know, if you're driving down the street and there's been a car accident and you can't go straight down that road anymore, it's blocked off. Well, if you've paved other roads to drive around it, you can still get to where you're trying to go. So do you, I mean, when you think of the word Alzheimer's, do you think, is this something that in 20 years from now we will say, man, we've just made incredible leaps and strides in preventing this or in, in, in improving the lives of people who have some of it, some of this disease? Yeah, I, I do. I see a future without Alzheimer's. I don't think it's that far-fetched. I think, you know, if we look back to HIV is a great example. So, you know, that disease struck in the 80s, and we had never seen it before, and there was no science around it yet. And, you know, today it is 100% treatable. We have HIV survivors now. There are a lot of cancer survivors now. There are real examples of diseases that were not understood and lethal, which are now managed well. And that possibility, I think, is there for Alzheimer's in our near future, certainly within 20 years. Lisa Genova is a neuroscientist turned writer. She's the author of the book Still Alice, which was also made into a movie starring Julianne Moore. You can see Lisa's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about prevention. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from State Farm. As a State Farm agent and agency owner, Lakeisha Gaines is passionate about empowering other small businesses. In the last several years, there are more business owners than we can count. Businesses are opening up quite frequently. And I think that shows the need, the dreams, and the desires of the community to have the independence and to have the financial freedom that's important to them. The reason why it's so important to me to be out there to share information and to educate the community is because I know that a dream doesn't always help you to be successful. You need the competency, you need the wisdom, you need the knowledge. That's where we come in as State Farm agents, our ability to be able to teach over 100 years of experience in this world to say, hey, we got you. You got this and we got this. Let's do it together. Talk to your local agent about small business insurance from State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about prevention. So there are some things like experiencing a stressful or traumatic event that are pretty hard to prevent. But the after effects, the depression, the PTSD, could maybe one day be a thing of the past. Do you think, in theory, something like depression can be prevented before it happens? I think depression is a word we use to mean many different things. This is Rebecca Brockman. She's a neuroscientist. But if you are referring to a certain subtype of stress-induced clinical depression, I suspect yes. Hmm. Amazing. I mean, in theory we could prevent some types of depression from happening even before they happen. That is my hope. That is, you know, I think the thing that keeps me up in the middle of the night when I'm thinking about the next experiments we can work on is sort of that hope. So a couple years ago, Rebecca and another colleague at Columbia University were studying the effects of a drug called Calypsol as an antidepressant in mice. And it's still in the very early stages. But what they found could possibly change the way we think about treating depression and PTSD or even preventing them from happening at all. Here's Rebecca Brockman on the TED stage. One of the experiments I was running, we would stress the mice and we use that as a model of depression. And a normal mouse will explore, it will be social, check out what's going on. If you stress a mouse in this depression model, they aren't social, they don't explore, they mostly just kind of hide in that back corner behind a cup. Yet the mice that had gotten that one injection of Calypsol, they were exploring, they were social, they looked like they'd never been stressed at all, which is impossible. So we did what you do in science when you're not sure, and we ran it again. It seemed like these mice were protected against stress, or they were inappropriately happy, however you want to call it. And we were really excited. And then we were really skeptical, because it was too good to be true. So we ran it again. And then we ran it again in a PTSD model. And we ran it again in a physiological model, where all we did was give stress hormones. And we had our undergrads run it. And then we had our collaborators halfway across the world in France run it. And every time someone ran it, they confirmed the same thing. It seemed like this one injection of Calypsol was somehow protecting against stress for weeks. And we only published this a year ago, but since then, other labs have also independently confirmed this effect. So we don't know what causes depression, but we do know that stress is the initial trigger in 80% of cases. And depression and PTSD are different diseases, but this is something they share in common, right? It is traumatic stress like active combat or natural disasters or community violence or sexual assault that causes post-traumatic stress disorder. And not everyone that is exposed to stress develops a mood disorder. And this ability to experience stress and be resilient and bounce back and not develop depression or PTSD is known as stress resilience. And it varies between people. And we have always thought of it as just sort of this passive property, right? It's the absence of susceptibility factors and risk factors for these disorders. But what if it were active? Maybe we could enhance it, sort of akin to putting on armor. It was this moment of putting together this idea that if resilience is an active mechanism, theoretically, you could enhance it. And if people with lower levels of resilience are at greater risk for stress-induced depression, then it actually makes perfect logical sense that if you can increase their resilience, you decrease their risk. And, and in a sense, like the medication would steal a human to prepare him or her from the effects of, of the stress they're, they're about to experience. I think steal is probably the wrong term. It would make them more rubbery hmm. or pliable, more resilient. So it's not that, you know, stress just has no effect on you. It's that, you know, it, you could have actually a very strong reaction to the initial stress, but you bounce back. It's, you know, the 
grass that bows over in the wind and then straightens back up after the wind has passed as opposed to this sort of rigid, you know, a stressor comes and you break. So, I mean, you could imagine if this works that somebody going into combat, say, or somebody about to, a firefighter about to go into a burning building would be able to take this medication and it and, and there might be a good chance that it would prevent the effects of that stress or trauma? Very possibly. And I, I think more important than the compounds that we're looking at now and the research that we're doing now is the idea. This idea that it might be possible to prevent these disorders. So even if it doesn't come you know, directly from the research we're doing now, the fact that th- we can now put this idea into the world and other researchers can work on it, I think, jointly, yes, it, it, might, I, it might be possible. So are you optimistic about where this technology is headed? I am optimistic that it, it might actually work. You know, the leap from mice and animal studies to humans is this huge sort of canyon. So, you know, there's always the possibility that none of this translates. But the effects we've seen so far in the lab, they're so robust. You know, they're some of the most reproducible effects that I've seen in my time in in the field. So I am I am optimistic based on the science that this is a thing within, you know, it might take 50 years, but that it might actually be feasible to prevent some of these disorders. Rebecca Brockman. She's a neuroscientist from Columbia University. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about prevention, the things we can do today to prepare for tomorrow. So the poem The Odyssey tells the legend of the Greek hero Odysseus and his journey home after the Trojan War. And if you've read it, you probably remember the part where Odysseus has to get past the sirens. The sirens, of course, being beautiful women who sit on this rock and sing a song so enchanting that everyone who's ever listened to it has steered closer and closer into the rocks, eventually crashing into the rocks, only to die And Odysseus decides he wants to be the first person to hear the song and live. So he comes up with a plan. This is Dan Goldstein. He's a behavioral economist. And he uses the story of Odysseus to talk about prevention. He realizes that once he hears the siren's song, he's going to try to steer the ship into the rocks. And he's going to die. And because he can anticipate that he's going to regret it, he decides to bind himself so that when temptation comes, he won't be able to do something regrettable. And so he ties himself to the mast, and his crew has wax in their ears so they can't hear the siren song. And he gets to actually experience what it's like to be tempted but not be able to do anything about it. Yeah. And the plan works. He lives. So that's a commitment device, it's sometimes called. What, what, what is a commitment device? It's just that. It's a thing that you put in place to bind yourself against doing something you anticipate that you will regret. So there are many commitment devices in real life. I love collecting them, picking them up from my friends, watching people use them in in daily life. Dan spoke about these commitment devices on the TED stage. I'm a big fan of commitment devices, actually. Tying yourself to the mast is the oldest one, but there are other ones, such as locking a credit card away uh, with a key or not bringing junk food into the house so you won't eat it or unplugging your internet connection so you can't use your computer. I was creating uh, commitment devices of my own long before I knew what they were. So when I was a starving uh, postdoc at Columbia University, I was deep in a publish or perish phase of my career. I had to write five pages a day Uh, towards papers, or I would uh, have to give up $5. And when you try to execute these commitment devices, you realize the devil's really in the details, because it's not that easy to get rid of $5. I mean, you can't burn it. That's illegal. And I thought, well, I could give it to a charity or give it to my wife or something like that. But then I thought, oh, I'm sending myself mixed messages, because not writing is bad, but giving to charity is good. So then I would kind of justify not writing by giving a gift, 
And then I kind of flipped that around and thought, well, I could give it to the neo-Nazis, right? <laughs> but then I was like, oh, that's more bad than writing is good, and so that wouldn't work. So ultimately, I just decided I would leave it in an envelope on the subway. Uh, sometimes a good person would find it, sometimes a bad person would find it. On average, it was just a completely pointless exchange of money that I would regret. So why do we need commitment devices? Well, resisting temptation is hard. It's an unequal battle between the present self and the future self. I mean, let's face it. The present self is present. It's in control. It's in power right now. It has these strong, heroic arms that can lift donuts into your mouth, right? And the future self is not even around. It's off in the future. It's weak. It doesn't even have a lawyer present. There's nobody to stick up for the future self. And so the present self can trounce all over its dreams. All right, so let's, let's talk about our present selves and our future selves. Because we, we know that we're all going to get older, right? And, and that means a variety of things. But, but very few of us have the capacity to really imagine what, what that's going to mean. Yes. It's very easy to ignore the future. It's very easy to think maybe as far in the future as your next meal. It's hard to think about the long run of your life how you want that to go 30 years from now, 20 years from now. Why? So the English philosopher Derek Parfit said, we ignore the future in part because of a failure of imagination or belief. And what I think he meant was we're unwilling to think about the future self because we can't imagine or believe how it might turn out or that our actions today could affect what things are going to be like. And I can understand this. It's difficult to imagine the future. There's a million ways your life could turn out, right, or more. How can you entertain all of those multitudes of possible futures? So, so basically, we have to imagine our, our future, our, our future selves, in, in order to prevent our current selves from hurting us in the future. Yeah. We can figure out a way to change the environment so that doing those things becomes easy. We can make bets, use commitment devices that encourage us to do the right thing, right? So I could bet somebody $5,000 that I won't gain 10 pounds in the next five years, and then it will be an incentive for me to keep my weight where it is. Um, And lastly, we can try to have a deep-seated change of heart. We can try to think for a moment about the future, think that if I take this action, I'm going to end up in this state. If I take the other action, I'll end up in the other state. And that makes the decision a whole lot easier. Despite uh, you know, my, my, my like for them, there's two nagging concerns that I've always had about commitment devices, and, and you might feel this if you use them yourself. So the first is when you've got one of these devices going, it's just a constant reminder that you have no self-control. And the other problem with commitment devices is that you can always weasel your way out of them. So I've been working for about a decade now on finding other ways to change people's relationship to the future self without using commitment devices. In particular, I'm interested in the relationship to the future financial self. Now, saving is a classic two-selves problem, right? The present self does not want to save at all. It wants to consume, whereas the future self wants uh, the present self to save. We look at the savings rate, and it has been declining since the 1950s, and we're at a situation now where for every three baby boomers, two will not be able to meet their pre-retirement needs while they're in retirement. What can we do about this? So my co-authors and I have used computers to assist people's imagination and help them imagine what it might be like to go into the future. So what we do is we take pictures of people, in this case college-age people, and we use software to age them and show these people what they'll look like when they're 60, 70, 80 years old. And we try to test whether actually assisting your imagination by looking at the face of your future self can change your investment behavior. So, so what do you find? So when looking at a picture of yourself in the future, people say that they're going to save 50% more for retirement than what they would if they were looking at a picture of themselves in the present. Wow. Yeah. And so if you can get to people just for a moment by simulating the future you can get them to make a binding decision, such as to start an automatic savings program, and then that will prevent them from ending up in retirement with not enough money. So if, if we can help people visualize their future selves, that could prevent 
people from making decisions now that could have catastrophic or bad outcomes in the future? Yes. We can now simulate a world in which you can look in every direction and visualize a bunch of different scenarios of how the future might look. Hmm. Right. So with saving, imagine putting on goggles and seeing yourself 30 years in the future, retiring on 10% of your pre-retirement income or 50% of your pre-retirement income or 100% of your pre-retirement income. You could look at your house, look at your clothes, look at where you go on vacation. By doing that, I think you will be able to connect the saving in the present to a certain future that might be very difficult to imagine otherwise. In the present, you think, oh, I'm fine. I can resist whatever comes along. But no matter who you are, eventually you're going to find yourself within earshot of the siren song. And it's going to be very difficult to resist temptation. But one nice thing about having a brain is that you can use it to predict that you will find yourself in situations in which you will lose self-control. And because you can predict that, you can prevent those situations from arising, or at least prevent yourself from doing something regrettable. Dan Goldstein, he's a computer scientist and experimental psychologist at Microsoft Research. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. Thanks for listening to our show this week on prevention. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdelfata, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Tony Liu. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at TEDRadioHour at NPR.org. You can follow us on Twitter. It's at TEDRadioHour. Please also subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, who, as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center in the country's top 4%, is unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Planet Oat. No deep thinking here. Planet Oat oat milk is rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. Visit planetoat.com for more. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.